1: Oh, thank you so much Crystal and I too would like to welcome everyone to today 's cancer care program on caregiving for your loved one with mantle cell lymphoma or m c l and today 's program is a collaborative effort between cancer care and many other cancer organizations and um we also are collaborating with um, lymphoma organizations um and, um, so I want to just mention them from Foundation of America, them from a research Foundation, as other organizations that are resources to people as well on this call um, and um it's really a pleasure to have all of you on the call today and we have on the call today over three hundred and five participants. You come from all of the United States you come from both. Rural, urban, suburban, and frontier communities, so really from all over the United States. And we also happen to have on the call today some international participants from Canada and the United Kingdom, so a bit of a global call as well. And today's program is supported by Pharmaceuticals LLC, an ABV company, and Janssen Biotech Inc., administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs LLC and a charitable contribution from Janssen Pharmaceuticals Companies of Johnson & Johnson. And I really want to thank them for their support of this program today. Now, we have wonderful speakers on the program today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Aaron Kent. And Dr. Kent is Associate Professor, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, or UNC, Department of Health Policy and Management, Gillings School of Public Health, full member UNC Lineberger Comprehensive Cancer Center, and Dr. Kent will be addressing taking on the role of caregiving, what research tells us about caregivers, and your important role in decision-making. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program
2: over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Kent. Thank you so much, Dr. Mesner. And I'm really honored to be invited by Cancer Care and to be speaking with all of you today on this important topic about caring for a loved one with mantle cell lymphoma. And I first wanna um, indicate, as, as, as Dr. Mesner pointed out, that I am a researcher and professor in the Gilling School of Public Health at UNC. Um, most of my work is focused on cancer patient outcomes, including quality of life, the impacts that cancer has on families, and specifically uh, this topic of cancer caregiving. I'm not, however, a clinician, uh, nor, so I don't have experience in providing direct medical or psychosocial care. Um, instead, my role today is to tell you about what the research tells us about being um, a family caregiver for someone with cancer. And I will leave more of the specifics of mantle cell lymphoma and some of the unique aspects that might that might come up in caregiving for someone with lymphoma to some of my fellow presenters who will follow me. Um, I'll set the stage by saying that uh, a cancer patient survey in 2015 led by Cancer Care found that the impact that cancer can have on family was the number one concern of cancer patients, just indicating how critically important it is that we pay attention to our cancer patients' families, in addition to the patients themselves. So I'll first start out by talking about what I mean um, by the term caregiver. So caregivers are people with cancer, um, and they may be spouses, partners, children. They could be um, other relatives and friends, neighbors, coworkers. Caregivers are people who help their care recipients or loved ones meet their day-to-day needs what we often refer to as activities of daily living. And this can include basic tasks like helping with feeding, dressing, bathing, moving around, and it can also include um, what we call instrumental tasks, things like shopping, paying bills, and socializing with other people. Tasks that ca- caregivers can also help with are um, include medical or nursing tasks, like administering medication, changing bandages, and helping with um, cancer-specific related treatment devices like infusion ports and catheters. Caregivers can also um, help by accompanying their loved ones to medical appointments, communicating and coordinating with healthcare providers, and even sometimes advocating for services. It's really important to note that many people um, do not think of themselves as caregivers, and I realize that this is not a term that resonates with everyone. But it can be a helpful term for healthcare providers, clinicians, and researchers to use that term to recognize all of the critically essential, important ways in which someone might support a loved one with a serious health problem. So how many caregivers are out there, who are they, and, and, um, and, and what, it, what is it that they do? So it's, it's very difficult uh, to estimate actually how many people are serving in this role at a given time especially for patients with a specific type of cancer. And and that is partly because many caregivers are helping care for loved ones with um, that have multiple health problems or chronic conditions. So they might have cancer but they also might have dementia. They might have cancer, they might have diabetes or some other um, chronic health condition. There is an organization called the National Alliance for Caregiving which conducts a survey of caregivers nationwide in the U.S. about every five years. Um, their last survey was um, the data were collected in 2014 and, and published um, uh, in 2016. And um, the most recent, so the most, the estimates from that report indicated that there's approximately 43.5 million adults who identify as currently serving as a caregiver. And that's for someone with... Um, any serious medical condition. And in the survey they asked those caregivers about their their loved ones and what kinds of health problems they were facing. And it turned out about 2.8 million of them um, um, reported that they were serving as a caregiver for someone with cancer. So we think this is actually an underestimate of the underestimate of the full number of people um, who are, are cancer caregivers per se. Um, and, and, and it also an, uh, doesn't fully reflect the total um, amount of time, effort, and even burden that someone who's caring for uh, a person with cancer and other chronic illnesses might face. But we, we, we can say that it's safe to say that there are thousands of people right now who, who fit the role of someone who is serving as a caregiver for a loved one with lymphoma, and there's certainly um, um, thousands more to come. Um, Rosalind Carter, the former First Lady and Caregiving Champion, um, has been quoted as saying there are only four kinds of people in the world, those who have been caregivers, those who currently are caregivers, those who will be caregivers, and those who will need caregivers. And we know that there are many challenging aspects to being a caregiver, uh, particularly for those who are, are providing um, support to a loved one for um, a large number of hours per week. and we. Um, and different researchers sort of cut that differently, but um, uh, for our purposes, for, for those who are caring for more than 20 hours a week, um, we found that there are are, are significant um, there's a significant level of burden for for some caregivers who are in that in that position. The National Alliance for Caregiving found that cancer caregivers, on average, are spending over 32 hours a week by providing care. Um, which tends to be more than those whose care recipients have health problems other than cancer. Cancer caregiving as, in general tends to be more episodic, meaning it, it kind of comes on and it's very intense for a shorter period of time um, than caregiving for those with other health conditions for whom the, the health is, has um, a more gradual decline. Um, not everybody reports feeling like they had a choice um, on taking on this uh, responsibility. Um, an obligation and, and a sense of purpose can certainly go hand in hand, but we do know that those who, um, who generally perceive that they didn't have a choice um, often also report more stress and strain in the caregiving experience. And what that can mean for someone considering becoming a caregiver is that choice really matters and that taking on this kind of role um, should be viewed as through the lens of adjustment. Um, So if you are becoming a caregiver, it might be important to take some time to process what is happening, what this means for you in your life, and your, your schedule changes to your daily routine. And setting and revisiting goals with your loved one is crucial. Caregiving does not have to be, nor should it be, a singular endeavor. There are ways to marshal support from additional family members and friends and there are tools to help organize requests, tasks, schedules, and expectations. So now more than ever, and especially in the, in the setting of feeling any sort of feelings of obligation, it's really the time to activate a village. Um, and in addition, it's also important to be able to communicate with the healthcare team of, of your loved one and navigating this transition to becoming a caregiver. Um, we also know that caregivers, um, for adults of any age with cancer, um, are, are, is most often conducted by spouses or partners um, who often face the competing demands of career and childbearing. and differences in caregivers' well-being have been shown across the caregiver-care recipient relationship um, with, uh, with certain kinds of, so individuals at certain points in their life um, reporting higher levels of distress and other relationship types. So for example, um, research has pointed out um, specific populations of caregivers, and that would include um, what we call sandwich generation caregivers, or um, those who are helping care for um, an older parent or a parent-in-law, along with um, younger minor children, um, caregivers who are working, and also um, uh, uh, female caregivers um, uh, who are caring for their parents, so adult daughters. and in one uh, study of a, f- a five year study of cancer caregivers, those caregivers who were not spouses or partners reported actually better mental functioning than spousal caregivers. And um, an and, and additional research suggested that there's gender differences in, in spousal caregiving, in that women who were caring for spouses reported more distress than men who were caring for their spouses. Um, suffice it to say, and this research is ongoing, but the range of needs and, uh, among patients and caregivers across the lifespan is wide, um, which which supports the need for availability of diverse resources and services for caregivers, um, no matter what their, their demographics are. Um, Fortunately, more and more resources are being developed um, every year, and Cancer Care can direct you to the kinds of resources specific to whatever um, unmet needs you might be be dealing with. I want to talk a little bit about um, decision-making because there's many ways that caregivers can assist their loved ones with decision-making, and that can be about receiving treatment, so either to go ahead and start a treatment regimen or to wait so that can be a decision, um, or to think about which treatment might be best if there are choices to pursue. And there is new and evolving research about the best ways that clinicians can help cancer patients and their families with making decisions. Some of this research is categorized under the term shared decision-making, which is a key component of patient-centered healthcare and is a process where clinicians, patients, and caregivers work together to make decisions, select tests and treatments, and the best care plan based on the available clinical evidence that balances risks and expected outcomes um, with patient preferences and values. So the Mayo Clinic has a guide out that lists five steps for patients as they consider um, shared decision-making as a process, and I'm going to um, augment that with um, the things that caregivers can do to help support patients in, 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 in approaching shared decision-making. So patients um, first should should try to, to get a handle on how much they want to know, and caregivers can help them um, by asking and questions and trying to sort of set the stage for, for how much it is they might want to know. Patients um, will, will need to decide how, not just what the decision should be, but how to make that decision. Um, and here caregivers can really aid by, by, by being patient and by really listening. Um, patients need to, t- to, to try to maintain realistic expectations and here caregivers can help by listening to clinicians and doctors taking notes um, and and where possible, um, oftentimes um, clinicians will will allow um, recording um, audio recording of of a, of a of an encounter so of a, a, a patient meeting um, just so that no information gets lost and caregivers um, can really aid with that um, either by taking notes or by doing audio recording. Um, but it's always advised to talk that over first with the healthcare team. Um, patients should um, really remember to keep th- their own focus on their own values and preferences. And caregivers can help by advocating for their loved ones with the healthcare team and finally patients um are it's are encouraged to accept help and um and then and this is of course the most critical role for caregivers is to be there as needed and really remember that um the support that um caregivers are providing is is absolutely invaluable there are always choices when it comes to cancer treatment and it is important to balance being patient and listening as a caregiver and also being active by a- advocating for for your loved one as much as you can and there's also um, some tools called uh, decision aids that can be used to help personalize a treatment choice. So this also might be something to discuss with a healthcare team um, for, what, for, for, uh, for your loved one um, who's um, undergoing lymphoma treatment. Um, this is an area of ongoing research as the field expands to provide more and more assistance with treatment decision-making as new treatments continue to become available. So with that, um, I want to thank everyone for listening, for being here today. Um, I'm happy to r- provide further resources or the follow-up as needed. And with that, I'll go ahead and hand it back um, over to Dr. Besner.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Kent. That was really outstanding and really um, really, really, set the stage for today's program uh, totally in terms of just giving all the backdrop to caregiving and all the, all the information that's out there about caregivers. So thank you so much. Um, our next speaker... Uh, is Dr. Ajay Gopal. Dr. Gopal is Professor of Medicine, Division of Medical Oncology, University of Washington, Member Clinical Research Division, Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center, Clinical Research Director and Medical Director, Hematology and Hematologic Malignancies, Seattle Cancer Care Alliance. And Dr. Gopal is going to address what's new in mantle cell lymphoma. Challenges and opportunities for caregivers in communicating with the healthcare team, and your role in care coordination and adherence, weekends, holidays, and vacations. It's really now my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Gopal.
3: Thank you, Dr. Messner, and uh, thank you, Dr. Kent, for that wonderful uh, overview of uh, caregiving. Um, So I'm a lymphoma clinician. I uh, see patients with lymphoma and mantle cell lymphoma and uh, run clinical trials in uh, mantle cell lymphoma and other lymphomas. And I wanted to just start by uh, talking a little bit about what's new in mantle cell lymphoma. And I think the overriding theme is there's lots new, and this is a very hopeful time in mantle cell lymphoma. Um, So I'm not going to be able to go into lots of uh, intricate detail really because there's so much new information out there but really talk about big themes uh in terms of what we're learning and how that translates into uh caregivers um opportunities for caregivers to uh, help with decision making uh in uh the current uh time so What we've learned about mantle cell lymphoma includes really understanding the biology of mantle cell lymphoma and knowing, understanding that there are certain genetic mutations that are associated with uh, different strategies that might be uh, uh, preferential, and we also know, unlike really even not very long ago, that there can be different approaches taken uh, from usual chemotherapy-type approaches to stem cell transplants to pill therapies. And uh, this, I'll get to in a moment, uh, leads to lots of uh, discussions and opportunities to uh, talk with your caregiving, with your providers uh, regarding what approach might one want to take, what might be best uh, in terms of uh, would one prefer a more intensive, aggressive treatment, which has the opportunity to be off therapy uh, for hopefully months to maybe years and years, uh, or would one prefer an approach that might be more of a chronic therapy, uh, such as a pill-type treatment? Uh, There are uh, new approvals of these pill treatments, there are uh, these drugs called Bruton's tyrosine kinase inhibitors. Uh, the original one was a drug called Ibrutinib, uh, but there's since been uh, second-generation uh, ones called Acalibrutinib and, more recently, another one called xanabrutinib. These are pill therapies that uh, can treat mantle cell lymphoma like a chronic disease. Uh, there is another another pill therapy called lenalidomide that has also been approved for mantle cell lymphoma. Uh, and then there's another pill which has been shown to have efficacy in mantle cell lymphoma, and we're hoping to have an approval in mantle cell lymphoma, something called venetoclax. So this is in contrast to uh, the traditional approach, which still may be correct for many patients of giving chemotherapy and rituximab and a stem cell transplant and rituximab maintenance. But it really just highlights that there are two very divergent strategies in terms of treating mantle cell lymphoma, from a a low-intensity chronic approach to a more aggressive, intensive approach that hopefully would give people some time off treatment. Looking down the road, there are also very encouraging data uh, with potentially uh, curative treatments. there um, is an approach for treating other lymphomas that's been approved called CAR T cell therapy, where we engineer T cells and give them back, and the T cells then go and attack the. Uh, lymphoma. Uh, There's some very encouraging data that was presented recently at the American Society of Hematology meeting where the majority of patients achieve complete remissions with this approach, even if other treatments for their mantle cell lymphoma uh, had uh, not been successful. So this is not yet FDA approved, but we're hopeful that in the future we will have this chimeric antigen receptor CAR T-cell immunotherapy available for mantle cell lymphoma. Uh, if it has not, uh, if the initial therapies were not uh, as effective as we hoped, there are other ways for uh, stimulating the immune system to attack the mantle cell lymphoma with things called bispecific antibodies, which is kind of like bringing the immune system near the cancer cell uh, by an IV infusion of a, of a, of a medicine. And uh, there were also data presented in other lymphomas uh, that even if the CAR T cell that I just mentioned was not uh, uh, did not give a complete remission. Uh, these approaches can be effective. So there are very exciting options. Currently, uh, there are many uh, others that are being that are on the horizon, and this really leads to some of the challenges uh, in terms of understanding what's best for mantle cell lymphoma and how the caregiver can play a role in thinking through with their loved one uh about which approach one wants to take. So some of the challenges, uh the main challenge really for mantle cell lymphoma for a patient and caregiver perspective is often which strategy uh and really talking it through with their uh uh providers should one take an aggressive approach with stem cell transplant, which requires a lot of commitment, and often if someone is not um, a near a big uh, cancer center, this might even mean time away from home to get treatment like a stem cell transplant. Uh, those strategies have been very effective historically and can give many people uh, sometimes many years of off therapy. Um, and it comes back to really, I talk to my patients often and care, their caregivers about what are their goals, what are their life goals, what are their short-term goals, what are their long-term goals, and how can we make the therapy customized to their goals. And I think now because there are many options, we can do a better job at that, whereas in days gone by, it was simply we had very few options, and this so we didn't really have much of a discussion. Uh, the other uh Thing to thing that caregivers can be very uh, helpful with uh, is um, discussing different side effects. Uh, different approaches have different side effects. Uh, unfortunately, every treatment has some risk of side effects, and uh, really working with their loved one and talking to the providers about short-term, maybe more side effects versus long-term but lower side effects, um, uh, in terms of our treatment strategies. And this really leads to opportunities. Uh, and I think, the, again, I've found a bit like a broken record, but the opportunity is now that there are lots of choices um, really involving the caregivers, I often ask my patients and caregivers that come to the meeting. I say, "Is there anyone else you want to get on speakerphone for this discussion and as as was mentioned by Dr. Kent, uh many patients will want to record our discussions, and I often suggest that if they want to record right on their phone, they can record our discussions and then they can send that audio file as a uh attachment to others uh, that are involved with as caregivers to to know what's what the options are um So really getting the whole team involved. I think the other um, opportunity, and I think patients may be a little uh, bashful sometimes for asking their physician, can they get an opinion at a comprehensive cancer center? Mantle cell lymphoma is still quite a rare diagnosis, and in many settings um, in the community, uh, many physicians may not see many patients with mantle cell lymphoma. And um, I think the caregivers can really be there to say, would it be a, would you recommend or could we go to one of the uh, comprehensive cancer cancer centers uh for an opinion? I think uh with mantle cell lymphoma in most cases, there is not a urgency to treat immediately. These are many times uh diagnosed um after some incidental finding, and uh there is time to get a second opinion to go to a comprehensive cancer center to have all the options that are laid out both standard of care options, as I discussed, as well as clinical trial options. And the caregiver can play a key role uh, into um, really facilitating that and sometimes asking on behalf of their loved ones about um, what options may be available uh, at at a uh, major uh, lymphoma center um, So um, I'm going to turn now a little bit to talk about uh, the uh, caregiver's role in uh, coordination and adherence. And as I mentioned, there are different strategies. And some of the strategies, like stem cell transplant, require lots of assistance with coordination and care and adherence during very intensive uh, periods of treatment. Um, But some are also uh, more uh, chronic therapy, so making sure one's taking all their medications on time, on schedule, um, making sure that there's a uh, sufficient uh, supply of uh, refills for these pill medications, particularly over weekends, holidays, over vacations, um, and not forgetting about the other medications that sometimes are uh, needed, such as anti-nausea medications, antibiotics. Um, Many of these, particularly the mantle cell inflow medications, if one's out of town these are not easy to get refilled if one runs out because they have to get sent by a often specified pharmacy and you can't just go to your local drugstore and get those medications refilled if you run out so um it's uh really important for caregivers to try to to think about that uh particularly for some of these very chronic therapies it's also important in terms of efficacy to stay on the medication. Uh, Even short periods of time, sometimes off these medications can be problematic, so it's important to try to maintain the dosing. I think the other thing that often gets forgotten, and I think as an oncologist, sometimes uh, patients are seeing us frequently. um, We are asked to uh, manage uh, all the primary care medications, and I will admit that uh, you know internal medicine is a whole different different specialty and managing cholesterol and high blood pressure and diabetes is often not the forte of a cancer doctor and i think the um the caregiver can also help maintain appointments with other specialists uh and other uh physicians and care uh, providers that uh patients need to see. So keeping track of this, uh, of all the various appointments, which can be really quite daunting, uh, is a, a key role of a, a caregiver. Uh, along these lines regarding particularly travel is maintaining a medication list. And I think anyone who cares for patients knows that it's often tough to know exactly which medications patients are on. And I, I always recommend patients and their caregivers to try to have a list of what medications they're actively taking because they may be seeing multiple physicians, and if they're traveling, uh, they may end up somewhere where they need to have this, and that that, that place cannot access their medical record. Um, so... Uh, Other things to be aware of, depending on what uh, treatments are being received, uh, are other precautions regarding certain foods, uh, other exposures, uh, travel, uh, travel medicine clinic, some may be in order uh, for certain travel. Um, And uh, I think uh, the other thing that i found that sometimes patients are reluctant to ask about but caregivers can really speak on behalf of patients is getting back to Goals uh, such as taking vacations, spending those important life events uh, with your family, even if it might involve travel, asking if a cycle of chemotherapy could be delayed so that somebody can attend a wedding or a baby shower or a graduation. These are critical life events, and I think many of us, we just don't know those are going on, and it's it's oftentimes the caregiver that will bring it up and say, you know, our granddaughter is getting getting married, and it's the same day as the chemotherapy. Can we change that? And I think we will, uh, as providers in general, want to encourage people to really live life and uh, take part in all these really important life events. But caregivers will often bring these these things up, um, often more more often than patients themselves. So um, there are some. Critical roles that uh, caregivers can can play uh, in this new, really very hopeful time uh, in terms of uh, treating uh, mantle cell lymphoma. Uh, so, with with that, I would like to turn the uh, 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 turn this back over to Dr. Messner, and thank you so much for the opportunity to speak this morning.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Gopal. That was really wonderful. I just um, amazing. Overview of mental cell lymphoma, lots of detail about mental cell lymphoma, and then also um, lots of issues for caregivers to think about in terms of and, and recommendations. So, thank you, excellent. Uh, and um, and I know there'll be questions for you during the Q and A. And our next speaker is Dr. Guadalupe Palos. Dr. Palos um, is Dr. Uh, Palos is a clinical protocol administrative administration manager. Office of Cancer Survivorship, the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center, and Dr. Palos is a bit of her own healthcare team. She's both a doctor of public health, a social worker, master's in social work, and a nurse, in RN. So she basically um, covers a lot of different disciplines herself. Um, and uh, Dr. Palos is going to be addressing coping with each day, on special occasions, anniversaries, and birthdays, managing family, friends, and traditions, and practical self-care tips for managing stress. It's really my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Palos.
4: Thank you, Dr. Messner, for the opportunity to be involved in this call about a topic that is of great importance to all of us. Today, we have an entire panel focusing on a topic that is often overlooked by providers, patients, and even the caregivers themselves. I'd like to remind our listeners in the context of today's call, we are referring to a caregiver as an unpaid person who provides physical, practical, emotional care and support to cancer patients in their home, and that home setting can be pretty much anywhere. We often hear the term caregiver when speaking about healthcare providers or paid caregivers. That is a group of its own and requires another uh, conference call like this. Today we focus on the 67-plus million people in the U.S. who are informal caregivers. Again, um, I think uh, Dr. Kent made this point, but because of societal trends, um, caregivers represent different groups. Caregivers are men, friends, friends, children, adolescents, grandparents, parents, and women. But before I go any further, I'd like to ask you to join me in a brief self-reflection exercise. And you don't have to answer the questions, only just think about them to yourself quietly. How many of you are quite successful in balancing all the roles, responsibilities, and functions of being a caregiver? How many of you were invited or asked to become a caregiver? How many of you felt you had no choice? For example, one caregiver I spoke to was the daughter Caring for her father. If I don't come, who will do what I do? How many of you simply accepted that you would be the caregiver? It's okay. It doesn't bother me. And now take a moment to think how many of you take the time to get some exercise, eat a balanced diet, get enough sleep when you're caring for a loved one. And how many of you have feelings of sadness, frustration, exhaustion, or just plain burnout? And lastly, if asked, how many of you would be able to share at least three positive aspects or rewards of being a caregiver? Being a caregiver to a loved one diagnosed with cancer is a challenging, complex, and multidimensional experience. So in the next few moments, I'll expand on these comments and on follow up on some of the um, comments made by Dr. Kent, Dr. Kent and Dr. Kupal. I will briefly answer the following points. How can one prepare and cope with holidays, birthdays, and special occasions? And equally equally important, how do we deal with our families, partners, and friends during these experiences? What are some of the stressors and rewards of caregiving? And then I'll summarize with some tips on how caregivers can take charge of their own emotional and physical health when feeling moments of stress. We need to know that we as caregivers can manage care during special events such as birthdays, um, maintain treasured traditions while continuing to provide effective care, and minimize disruptions and refills of medications or treatment by planning ahead. And as providers on this call, we must understand the impact that this disease has on families, especially during the special events and support. Caregiving of any type is becoming a public health issue. Why? Again, because there are several trends in our society that influence the act of caregiving. For example, for the last 20 years, there has been a decrease in fertility rates in our world, The life expectancy of folks is longer. Traditional family structures are changing, as is the patterns of working. Many more women are working more than ever before, and in the past, they were traditionally considered the caregivers. It's not that way any longer. In fact, it's now predicted that there will be a shortage of caregivers. So in response to this prediction, there's been a call to find ways to support caregivers and reward them for their work, that is, Uh, There's been a call for developing caregiving policies that will promote the well-being not only of the patients, but now of the caregivers and the families. So that's the good news for the future of caregiving. But what about those of us who are caregivers today? Were caregivers yesterday, and most likely we will be caregivers tomorrow. How can caregivers maintain and protect their own health and well-being? As we have heard, caregivers may often feel that they must try to maintain many roles at one time and yet still have a normal life. This becomes particularly important when it's time to celebrate special times and maintain meaningful family or cultural traditions. But how does one keep up with the special events and wonderful traditions in the families and the ones that the families have always associated with happiness and normal living? Caregivers and their families often find themselves struggling to keep up with those activities when a loved one is diagnosed with cancer. So I'd like to first address how to cope with holidays and special events, just give you some some tips. First, you and your family can create new traditions. Even if you cannot be there in person, some of the activities can become new traditions for you and your loved ones. For example, if your role was to be the family event planner or the king or queen chef, this is a good time now to share that role or hand over the torch to another member of the family. Remember, it can be especially stressful trying to be the event planner, the cook, the caregiver, the navigator, and all the other roles that may have been so easy in the past but now are a source of stress. So think about what are the ways that we can create new traditions and pass on some of these new traditions to other family members or friends. Second, you and your family can prepare your own video clips of past holidays uh, and give them as a snapshot of memories from the past and share them with your loved ones. And you can even videotape or, again, um, create, there's so many technological ways that I'm sure many of our family members can help us with in trying to develop memories that we can share with each other through our telephone or iPhones or through videotapes and things of that nature. Third, if you can't travel to a family celebration, set up a web camera so you can actually see your loved ones and talk to them. Skype is an awesome way to keep in touch with loved ones across the miles. Communication such as this gives you an opportunity to be present and to be a part of the celebration, which is important and which keeps that continuity in the family and among friends. During holidays, celebrations, medical emergencies, and even natural disasters can come up. So be prepared for unexpected situations. So know where your closest emergency room center is located. Find out what services are provided by a local emergency room. For example, are they prepared to care for your loved one? Ask about insurance coverage and other specific details about obtaining services, and be sure to ask about the types of documents needed. If you have all these things ahead of time, then when you decide to travel for a special occasion, you'll have all these documents readily available. Fourth, become a lifelong learner. That is, learn about the resources to help with the journey of having a loved one diagnosed with mental cell lymphoma. The course of this diagnosis varies over time. The side effects related to the treatment are unique, for for example, such as caring for a loved one during the stem cell transplant. So the more you learn about this disease, you decrease the risk of being taken by surprise, and the stronger you can become as a caregiver. Fifth, learn the importance of planning ahead of time. That is, have some lead time whenever a holiday, weekend, um, or some type of travel is scheduled. Travel can be the 40-minute drive to a daughter's for an afternoon visit or a five-hour flight for 10 days out of state. So here are a few tips for preparing for a trip and planning um, some lead time. Keep a schedule of when refills are due. This is important and helps minimize the risk of being in another state or country and running out of medications. Carry a small carry-on bag with all the medications, either stored in a prescription container or in their original bottles depending, again, on the length of the trip and the route of transportation. Keep a small index card in the family member's wallet, as well as your own, and the patient. It can list all of the medications, their dosages, time to be taken, and how to be taken. And also remember, it's not just the medications that are related to the person that the person needs during their cancer diagnosis, but if they have arthritis, if they have diabetes, if they have any type of cardiac problems, all of those medications would be helpful to have listed in there also. And at the same time, on the back of the index card, write down the names and contact information of the physicians prescribing the medications, the pharmacy where the medications are obtained, And again, include emergency information for each provider and um, each pharmacy. You can ask your physician to write a letter stating that he or she has prescribed um, the following medications and have the list of the medications there. Make copies of the letter and give uh, one to each primary caregiver. It is helpful to communicate with your pharmacist. Ask about the pharmacy's policies regarding refills if you lose your medications or run out of pills while you're out of town. Some pharmacies will provide enough refills to last until you get back home or um, when you reach your prescribing physician. And as Dr. Kapal mentioned, it's important to manage medications because some of these are hard to fill uh, when they're related to uh, the mental cell lymphoma diagnosis and treatment. And the last but critical point is to maintain regular and open communication between the prescribing provider, the pharmacy, the caregiver, and the patient. Also remember to ask for help and information. For example, Cancer Care has an excellent uh, website full of resources, and they also have um, access to online support groups. And Ms. Hanley will give us a little bit more information on that later on. Studies indicate that caregivers of patients diagnosed with cancer have been found to have a higher rate of anxiety, sadness, or even depression. There's some evidence that there are three challenges associated with cancer caregiving for both men and women, such as neglect of self, changes in the relationship with the person living with cancer, and the consequences on the caregiver's physical and psychological health, and problems occurring such as fatigue, sleep problems, and others. A stressor can come from a seemingly simple thing, such as someone having to uh, now learn how to drive and be the main driver, and they didn't have that role before, or even someone who has to learn uh, domestic responsibilities, such as cooking, cleaning, and washing, and that wasn't their area of expertise before. These types of activities may sometimes be outside the usual roles, and learning the new roles can be a source of distress for a caregiver. There is no doubt that being a cancer caregiver puts one on a roller coaster of emotions, and that's um, that's normal, and it's important to realize that when this stress becomes overwhelming, it's helpful to find other ways to deal with that stress. On the other hand, studies have also shown that caregivers of patients diagnosed with cancer have reported rewards of caregiving or benefits. That includes finding an accepting attitude of life, positive changes in their self-view, the change in interpersonal relationships, that is, that become stronger and more meaningful, and then developing a deeper sense of purpose in life. Many caregivers, in my experience, have shared their perspective on being a caregiver, They said it taught them to adjust to things they could not change. Others have said the experience led them to people who became their best friends and who they never would have met if they hadn't been going through the experience. And another said it taught me to be more patient and to be a stronger person. Finding benefit when one finds stressful events is important because it can help individuals integrate negative experiences into their world in a meaningful way. It can help people to become better at taking care of their own health. Also, it's important for caregivers to monitor themselves for burnout, to ask themselves do they find themselves getting sick more often, not finding any time to take care of their own needs, or feeling isolated from friends or not taking time for fun things. Remind yourself that by taking care of your own health, you and the person you are caring for will reap the benefits of being a healthy caregiver. So schedule time for yourself to relax. Read a book, take a nap, go for a walk, try some yoga, do some meditation, do some journaling. Take time to bring some laughter, fun, and rest into your daily routine. You can even gather strength from others. Schedule a time to meet up with friends to re-energize yourself and consider joining a support group. So my final message is to share, to share with you is just do the best you can. Whether you're a patient, caregiver, or a provider, be good to yourself. Protect your own physical and mental health. Perhaps some of our listeners can share how they maintain their own treasured traditions, celebrations, and holidays. Thank you for allowing me to share these thoughts with you. Dr. Messner, this concludes my remarks.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Palos. That was really outstanding, and I have to say that the way you ended in terms of just people just taking care of themselves and being kind to themselves is so important for everyone to hear. And indeed, during the Q&A, we will absolutely be happy to take not just questions, but if someone has an, their own recommendation for caregivers as a caregiver themselves, we're happy to hear those as well. So thanks for reminding us about that as well. And our next speaker is Miss Mary Henley, and Miss Henley is an oncology social worker at Cancer Care, and she will be addressing how long-distance caregivers make a difference Cancer Care's free psychosocial services and programs, and the role of support groups. It's really my great pleasure to introduce to you and turn this program over to my esteemed colleague,
5: Ms. Hanley. Thanks so much, Dr. Messner, for that wonderful introduction. So as Dr. Messner mentioned, I am an oncology social worker here at Cancer Care with a clinical interest in both caregiving and the issues that caregivers face. As an oncology social worker, I provide support services to individuals and their loved ones who are impacted by a cancer diagnosis. I also stay abreast of changing trends and new knowledge in the field in order to provide the best care possible to those who use our services. I first wanted to discuss a large but often under acknowledged group of caregivers, which is the long distance caregiver. I suspect some of you calling in today may even be long-distance caregivers yourselves, and you're trying to help your loved one out by seeking out some new information, both for them and for yourself. For those who aren't familiar with this term, a long-distance caregiver is often a loved one who lives far away from the person with cancer, or maybe lives nearby but doesn't have a reliable means of transportation. For those of you living far away from your loved one with cancer, It can be easy to struggle with feelings of guilt about not being physically present, but there are definitely still plenty of ways to still be there. For example, setting up medical appointments and transportation is something that can now be done remotely with ease. There are also a lot of blog platforms like My Cancer Circle, for example, where you can share updates about your loved one with cancer, put up tasks that your loved one needs help with, and that can help crowdsource even more support for the person with cancer. But often the most important thing for someone who has a loved one with cancer is just listening to the person. It doesn't seem like much, but it means the world to the person living with this diagnosis every day. We have a fact sheet on our website, cancercare.org, titled Long Distance Caregiving, if you're interested in more information or more specific tips on how to help. And of course, I'm also happy to answer any questions you guys may have in a moment. On that note, I'd like to speak about the importance of creating a support network as part of that care and how cancer care can be a part of your network. Cancer Care is the leading national organization dedicated to providing free professional support services, including counseling, support groups, educational workshops, just like this one, publications, and financial assistance to anyone affected by cancer. All of our services are provided by oncology social workers and world-leading cancer experts. At Cancer Care, our licensed oncology social workers are trained in how a cancer diagnosis can impact an individual and their loved ones and supports. A cancer diagnosis comes with many challenges, including financial demand, physical changes, social adjustment, and psychological impact in care. Our social workers are knowledgeable and can address the full scope of issues that cancer patients and their supports may face. Our short term cancer focused Focused individual counseling and support groups are available to those diagnosed with cancer, as well as those for loved ones or caregivers to address these concerns. They're offered in person in our offices in New York City, New Jersey, and on Long Island, New York, and over the telephone and online nationally. Working one-on-one with an oncology social worker and individual counseling can offer a space that's just yours to express your concerns. It also provides a space to help navigate difficult decision making or communication with your loved ones on your medical team, among other challenges that may arise. Your social worker can work with you to address your concerns in a way that is tailored to your individual needs. And so joining a support group also offers the opportunity to speak with others who may be experiencing similar issues and navigating similar challenges. Additionally, it is a space to both gather and provide support and obtain valuable information. We offer several support groups for caregivers. We offer them both in person in all of the offices I mentioned, over the telephone nationally, and nationally on our website, cancercare.org. We have a general group as well as more specific groups, for example, like young adult caregivers. And we have a new online group right now for caregivers to someone who is about to have or recently had a stem cell transplant, which I'm sure maybe a couple of you are dealing with right now. A cancer diagnosis can be overwhelming. Having support and guidance as well as establishing a support network of trusted people can help to relieve feelings of anxiety that may come up. Having this support can also reduce feelings of loneliness and can help to increase feelings of hope and empowerment. In addition to our short-term cancer-focused support services, we also provide additional services including the educational workshops, reading materials, and limited financial support. If you're interested in learning more about our services, I encourage you to call Cancer Care's National Hopeline at 1-800-813-4673 to speak to one of our oncology social workers. There you can discuss what led you to cancer care and explore with one of our social workers the way in which we can offer support. Our social workers can also provide resources to access clinical trials, financial assistance, and potential supports local to you and we look forward to hearing from you. Our our hotline is open from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. Eastern Time, Monday through Thursday, and 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time on Fridays. Thank you so much for your attention and for the opportunity to be a part of this program today. I will now turn our program back to Dr. Messner.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Antley. That was really wonderful and just really very informative about, first of all, long-distance caregivers, but also all the different services that everyone can access from Cancer Care. And now we do have time for questions. I'm going to ask uh, uh, Crystal if she bring all of our speakers on board and, um, and explain how to queue up for questions. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then 1 on your touchstone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. For those of you on the web, you may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. And again, ladies and gentlemen, that is star one to ask a question.
1: And um, I have a question for one of our online participants. um, And this one, I'll read the question and then um, decide who wants to address it. It may be one that everyone may want to address, but um, I'm trying to convince my brother diagnosed with mental cell lymphoma to go outside. He says he is really tired, um, and um, I'd like to take him on walks, but he always declines. So, um, well, let's see,
4: Doctor Palos, do you want to start with that one? Well, I, I it's, um, it's good that you're trying to encourage your brother to go out on walks with you. That's that's wonderful. It's very caring. I think the one thing that might be helpful is just to find out why he doesn't feel comfortable going out walking. Um, it could be that you know he might say, "Oh, I'm just too tired." It could mean, oh, I'm afraid I might, you know, injure myself as I'm walking along. You know, all kinds of crazy things happen. But the thing is, is to just listen and find out what the reservations are about walking. It could be that he's just feeling very sad or blue about all the circumstances. And if he shares that with you, then that's a good time to take advantage of some of the resources that were being discussed during our call today. I think, again it's good to just keep on encouraging him and inviting. And one day, I mean, you can always try to tie an incentive with it. I mean, that always works also. Like, okay, if you take this five-minute walk with me, we'll do something that you really want to. So if you start in small increments, that might even be more helpful. You know, you don't have to walk a whole mile, but let's walk down the driveway and back again. So I think the first thing is, ask and try to find out what the reservations are of your brother for wanting to not wanting to do any of the walking right now. And I'm sure some of our other panel experts would have some other advice for you also.
1: Actually thank you, excellent. And I, I Doctor Gopal, there are a number of questions um around fatigue or so I'm just wondering if you could is that um if you could address that just from um is that something that is come with mental cell lymphoma, or it just happens to see the questions that we're getting?
3: Yeah, I think these, this fatigue is really something that's probably underappreciated I think by uh healthcare providers and I think sometimes uh, we so, so a, a patient may say, oh, I feel a little tired, but it, the, the caregiver can really provide information about what does tired mean? Does tired mean I feel a little tired at the end of the day, or does tired mean I really just can't even, you know, do anything that I want to do that gives me enjoyment in life? And I think these are things that Absolutely, have to be brought up with your uh, health care team and really with details of what, what can and can't be done because of fatigue. And it maybe it's due to mantle cell lymphoma, maybe it's due to treatment. And I think if it's uh, due to either of those, there are so many options for changing things and adjusting treatment or supportive care. Um, or is it due to being uh, sad or depressed about diagnosis? And is that another strategy that needs to be uh, uh, intervened upon? So I, I think the, the caregiver. Fatigue is extremely common. There's a huge spectrum of what fatigue means, um, and I think the uh, caregiver can really p- play an important role in terms of painting an accurate picture of what that fatigue entails for someone who's suffering with mantle cell lymphoma so their uh, uh, provider team can um, can try to address that.
1: Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and does anyone else want to add to that, Ashley? Um, Ms. Hamley, do you want to make is this something that comes off clinically um, with some patients in terms of just not feeling like doing something that they ordinarily would have done in general?
5: Hmm. That's a good question. So dealing with fatigue, I guess, from a caregiver perspective, I think something that's important to keep in mind as you see your loved one dealing with fatigue and not wanting to do things is that patients are very well aware that they are aren't as healthy as they were before, that they don't have the same physical abilities that they had before they got cancer. And so any moment where they're, they see themselves not being able to walk as far as they used to or being more tired than they used to, that can reinforce a feeling of loss that this person has over their health and that their old standard of life, the, the loss of their complete independence, is a real thing, and so sometimes those physical symptoms can elicit an emotion, re- emotional reaction, in that they're kind of grieving of like, oh, I can't do this anymore, and that can really be a moment to, to just be there for the the person with mantle cell lymphoma and just listen to them. Awesome. thank you, and
1: um, thank you, and actually, um, this probably will. So another question that is coming up a lot in terms of watch and wait um, and um, concern during that for mantle cell lymphoma. So, does that is that a, can you comment on that, Dr. Gopal?
3: Yeah. So, watch and wait is a, is a, is absolutely a valid approach for mantle cell lymphoma. Many times mantle cell lymphoma is just incidentally found sometimes on a colonoscopy or a little bump that got biopsied, and some of the patients otherwise completely asymptomatic, maybe just the blood counts that were a little bit abnormal. And I think uh, this really illustrates the spectrum of mantle cell lymphoma. So if there's no... Real reason to treat. Uh, observation is an is an opportunity to really see uh, if uh, one can go for a long time without needing treatment. It's also an opportunity with really no rush if one wants to seek out a second opinion at, at a either a different uh, cancer center or a larger center that sees lots of patients with mantle cell lymphoma to to make sure you're on the right track. But. Uh, um, Observation is is a very appropriate uh, approach in certain situations.
1: Excellent. Um, and also another question for you, Doctor Gopal. What what criteria you use to determine that indolence has become aggressive?
3: Well, you know, I think there aren't strict you know textbook uh, ch- criteria, but some of the things that we look at are has the uh, behavior of the mantle cell changed? Is it something that has was growing very, very slowly, and all of a sudden it seems to be growing quickly? Uh, under the microscope, has it changed? Have uh, there been new uh, mutations uh, that are found in a repeat repeat biopsy, or uh, potentially are tests that look at how fast the cells are dividing? Has that changed? Uh, and probably even maybe more importantly is how is it making someone feel? If someone was feeling fine, uh but all of a sudden now they're having quite a bit of symptoms uh related to mantle cell lymphoma, then that might have also that might also suggest that uh the biology has changed a little bit.
1: Thank you. And um so um we we also have some questions, kind of a pattern of questions from the online participants about um the difference they're perceiving um in their loved one who is Actively ill with mantle cell lymphoma, and just um, and how they they need to kind of, as a caregiver, come to grips with that. And so, um, I wondered, Mary, if you could say a little bit more about the support groups and um, and just the, the support that people can get in dealing with changes that they may be experiencing as a caregiver.
5: Is this for me? Yes. Yes. Okay, sorry about that. Yeah, so um, caregiver groups, um, oftentimes there is kind of that shared um, documentation of changes that the loved one is going through, processing what that means for them and how their life is changing as a result, and I think this is something that's very common with, with lymphomas and other types of cancer as well, and so a lot of caregivers go through this feeling of loss of that oh my loved one looks different now or my loved one's skinnier or my loved one's lost their hair and so having people around you in a support group whether that be in person online over the phone that can kind of relate to that on a on a felt level of the, I've been through that too level I think is really important and different just from people who are well-meaning and do listen to you, but haven't had that experience.
1: Thank you, and Dr. Palos, do you want to add anything?
4: Um, no, I, I think she did a, a good thing. job. Mm-hmm. Of, of addressing mm-hmm. That. Mm-hmm. Thank
1: you. Excellent. Well, we do have many more questions in queue, but I realize that, you know, we could spend quite a bit more time this afternoon on this call, but we had said it would be an hour program, and so um, I want to thank our speakers. You have been actually phenomenal as speakers, just wonderful. And I want to thank our participants, um, our online participants, for asking such great questions. And um, so as we kind of wrap up the program today, um, we do know that um, we do want anyone who's Learned what you've learned today. We want you to take it back to your healthcare team, um, to your own healthcare team who know you very well. But we do also do know that many of you have questions that you like to vet outside of your healthcare team, from a credible resource, and then go back to your healthcare team because only your healthcare team knows you the best. Of course, they know all the details about your your needs and care, um, so that. Um, So we often do recommend we are partnering with a number of different cancer organizations, and we do recommend for further medical information that your healthcare team, of course, are primary, um, but also um, we are partnering with the Lymphoma Research Foundation and Lymphoma Foundation of America, and those, and there are many other organizations that are um, on our list of collaborating organizations, and when you get your evaluation form, probably within a day or two of the program today, there will be all sorts of resources for you to to draw upon that are credible websites and places to call if you want to gather more information about mantle cell lymphoma who have booklets and materials for you and if you want to pursue further supportive help um, in terms of dealing with your emotions or social concerns practical concerns um, we definitely would encourage you to contact Cancer Care um, at 1-800-813-4673 or www.cancercare.org I want to thank you all for your participation today. And I also want to remind all of you that we have many programs coming up, and you're going to be getting information about some of the upcoming programs that might be relevant to you as well. So thank you all, and I want to wish you a very fine
0: day. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.